This is a conversation with Central Asia expert Timur Umarov on the cooperation and rivalry between the economies of China, Russia, and Central Asia. We discuss the impact of One Belt, One Road on Central Asia, how Russia has tried to cultivate economic relations with Central Asia since the collapse of the USSR, how Central Asia's economies see one another, both in terms of their cooperation and rivalry with other Central Asia neighbors, as well as the future of capitalism in the region. If Milton Friedman went to China to talk about breaking the iron rice bowl, how are today's neoliberals trying to influence the economic policy of Central Asia? That's a discussion I'm able to have with Timur, who gives an encyclopedic and fascinating tour of the economies of Central Asia. For more conversations like this, you can go to our back catalog on the Arts of Travel podcast, and for print interviews, you can go to asiaarttours.com. My name is Timur Marov. I was born in Samarkand, Uzbekistan, uh, and uh, spent um, almost 10 years of my life studying in Russia and China, uh, doing international relations. Uh, and now I'm working at uh, Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, where I cover uh, Central Asia and China. Within Central Asia, post-USSR, what would we call the capitalism that exists there? When we talk about Central Asia, understand that um, it's not a five uh, very similar countries. Um, those countries differ. Uh, when we talk, for example, about Uzbekistan, uh, this is um, a heavily um, state-regulated uh, capitalism. Uh, where um, you have a lot of uh, protectionist instruments in the hands of uh, the government. Uh, for example, import fees. Um, it's uh, really impossible to um, um, import, um, to find any project that doesn't have um, a fee uh, if you want to import it. So that is why it creates uh, just uh, very good um, atmosphere for local producers to um, arise. And that is why we have in Uzbekistan a lot of monopolies who, um, you know, were um, created uh, with the help of government. And uh, on the one hand, um, of course, it's um, it, it has its negative effect. Yeah, uh, society doesn't have um for for its money it doesn't have um, quality uh, the same quality products as it could have um, if they could uh, import stuff without uh, fees uh, but on the other hand during times of crisis like the one that we live in today 
um, uh, Uzbekistan's economy uh, gets hit uh, much less because um, it is self-sufficient and has uh, basically um, ability to cover all um, basic needs of uh, its population. Um, so, um, but uh, during the uh, last several years, Uzbekistan is developing and tries to open its economy. Uh, but here, um, you know, um, we have kind of a split in the leadership. One part of the leadership wants um, to continue reforming the economy, to be more open, to uh, get uh, more and more investments into Uzbek economy. But other part who are connected to those monopolies who you know, are the winners of this um, status quo of this overly protected economy. They don't want uh, these reforms to happen very quickly. So um, when it comes to Uzbekistan, I would say that this is um, um, capitalism with a very heavy uh, government presence. Uh, but other countries, uh, um, like uh, if we talk about Kazakhstan, Kazakhstan's economy uh, looks a lot like uh, Russian. Uh, it's also dependent on um, resources export. And um, it also has, um, I, I, would, I would say that it, it's um, a um, kleptocratic um, uh, capitalism where you have a lot of uh, oligarchs, uh, some of them are connected to, uh, not, not some of them, the majority of them are connected to uh, the government. And it's interesting that uh, at this moment we are uh, in the, mm, you know, in the middle of process of kind of um, changing the structure. Yeah, as you know, um, in January uh, 2022, there was a, a major uh, political crisis um, in um, Kazakhstan. And uh, since then, uh, President Takayev is trying to uh, uh, what uh, some experts call uh, launch a de-Nazarbayevization of uh, the system. Uh, and it's not only about politics, but also about um, economy. Um, uh, yeah, so, um, and, and, and when we talk about other countries of Central Asia, uh, Tajikistan and Turkmenistan are more, um, 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 you know, government um, um, controlled, uh, especially Turkmenistan. With Turkmenistan, I wouldn't call it capitalism at all. Uh, there are no, um, you know, uh, free market rules uh, that work. Um, and um uh, there is no uh, in individual property uh, uh, securities that really exist and um, um this is not um, capitalism uh, with uh, tajikistan um it's um, another story um it's um of course a um oligarchic um oligarchic driven um uh, capitalism, but uh, the, um, the thing is uh, uh, the only major oligarch uh, kind of group um, is um, the family of uh, the president Rahman. So um, this is <laughs> kind of another story. Um, and with Kyrgyzstan, um, you know, Kyrgyzstan's economy, uh, I would say this is uh, the um, kind of uh, 
Kyrgyzstan managed to uh, come to capitalism closer than others. Um, um, but still, um, in, in Kyrgyzstan, we also have a lot of uh, different uh, major groups of um, um, uh, people who um, have access uh, to financial resources and uh, political resources um, as well. Uh, so, uh, but what unites all of the uh, Central Asian countries is that um, um, here you have um, a, a situation when a group of people um, who have access to money don't um, always have access to power, but um, uh, when they have access to power, they 100% have um, um, access to money. So power brings money. Uh, this is uh, what unites uh, kind of eco economies of all Central Asian countries, I would say. So I'm very unclear about how One Belt, One Road currently connects to Central Asia. What projects have already started? Um, how is China selling this in terms of future development? And has OBOR brought any tension with Russia and the Russian influence in Central Asia's economies? The interesting thing about uh, Belt and Road Initiative is that no one really knows uh, what uh, it is. Uh, and even um, Chinese leadership uh, doesn't know how exactly they see BRI. Um, and um, this is, um, uh, you know, um, even, even the name of, um, of it is very vague and not uh, clear um, and uh, you don't have if we talk about BRI as this um, infrastructure project uh, we uh, today live um, in a world where uh, this BRI was launched nine years ago yeah and till today we don't have exact map of how this uh, you know railways are going to be built or uh, what exactly is uh, the infrastructure vision of uh, Chinese leadership uh, in, that will connect uh, China to Europe through uh, you know, Central Asia or, or Russia? Uh, we, we still don't know. Um, uh, if we talk about BRI as this um, uh, sets of uh, projects um, in um, not only um, infrastructure, but also industries uh, and plan of China to invest more money into uh, developing economies. Uh, we also do, do not have uh, kind of really uh, thought, thought out uh, plan or roadmap uh, that uh, China published somewhere and we can uh, discuss uh, what are the you know projects um, um, under under this um, umbrella uh, so basically uh, what BRI is 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 an umbrella of uh, different projects that um, China is doing all over the world uh, and uh, Central Asia uh, here uh, basically uh, plays this uh, uh, role of uh, being a bridge between uh, China and Europe. Um, and um, at the same time, BRI um, 
um, as, as Chinese say, brings opportunity for Central Asia to develop um, kind of connectivity. Um, and uh, this is like real connectivity. Uh, uh, there are projects uh, where uh, China is building um, roads um, in, in Kyrgyzstan. Um, uh, and uh, there are talks um, about uh, new railways that will connect uh, Central Asia and China. Yeah, uh, the one that is um, planning to that, that the countries plan to build through Kyrgyzstan to Uzbekistan um, is, you know, uh, exists. The plans about that and talks um, exist. Uh, since I remember myself, but uh, till today, uh, nothing has been uh, really done to uh, build it. Um, and at the same time, uh, some of the projects that, that already exist um, in Central Asia, uh, like uh, gas pipeline from Central Asia to China, are now also under BRI umbrella, but everyone knows that they were built even before BRI was created. So um, I would say that um, BRI is everything that China is doing uh, <laughs> outside its borders. Um, and, and that is why every single, um, like mostly um, every single big, uh, project that you see in Central Asia will be somehow connected to BRI. Um, and um, um, it's just um, this uh, kind of uh, attempt of China to uh, build uh, its uh, reputation um, and uh, try to escape from uh, its prior reputation of being um, um, a very kind of um, a pushing uh, country um, and, um, you know, through BRI, uh, China wants to kind of recreate its um, appearance outside um, of its borders and to make it not look um, as expansion, but as a way of cooperation and um, kind of uh, China's help to develop uh, the region. I have no idea what BRI looks like in terms of how Russia thinks of it. Could you help clarify that and maybe push back on some of those stereotypes about uh, Russia's economic planning when it comes to Central Asia? So how does Russia think about BRI and how have they tried to plan? Um, uh, how does it disrupt already existing economic relations with Central Asia? Yeah, so um, because of uh, Soviet Union's economy was uh, built in a way to um, make um, Moscow and Russia not only a political center where all of the major decisions were made, but also economic center that uh, kind of consolidated um, everything on its own and um, um, kind of tied every single Central Asian and not only Central Asian, but other uh, Soviet countries uh, to the center. Uh, the way cooperation between Central Asia and Russia in the times of independence look was also um, uh, as it used to work during Soviet times. Yeah, everything was um, 
um, for example, if you talk about infrastructure, if you talk about logistics, um, everything was uh, um, going to, um, so, um, I mean, basically, there were working um, routes uh, from Central Asian countries to uh, Moscow, yeah, when we talk about railways, um, airplane uh, routes, and uh, stuff like that. Um, but um, in uh, for independent Central Asian countries, this was a major risk because they were dependent on Russia so much and uh, it created this source of um, instability and gave Moscow a lot of opportunities to push Central Asian countries to those directions that Moscow wanted. Uh, and for them, uh, number one thing that they wanted to do is, of course, to diversify their connections to, to the world. Uh, and China came here um, as the first uh, variant, yeah, because you have this enormous border uh, with uh, three Central Asian countries. Uh, and uh, during Soviet times, uh, it was uh, almost no connections uh, between Central Asian countries and uh, Xinjiang uh, and, and China, uh, because everything should have gone through Moscow. But now you have this, you know, newly independent countries and both, you know, the parties, both Central Asian countries and China were interested in creating those ties. Uh, so, um, Russia, of course, uh, in the first uh, years when it saw uh, more, um, you know, uh, more connections being created between Central Asian countries and China, it was kind of nervous, it uh, was afraid to lose uh, Central Asia to lose its uh, influence over Central Asia. And of course, it overlapped with China's very, very uh, quick growth. Um, uh, but um, when we saw one after another uh, crisis between Russia and Western countries, starting from uh, 2008, uh, Georgia, yeah, creation of um, uh, this buffer republics of uh, Abkhazia and uh, South Ossetia. Uh, after that, we saw in 2014 Crimea. Um, and now we're living in horrible uh, Russia's aggression in Ukraine. Uh, so all of those crises uh, between Russia and the West alienated Russia from the West and turned it to China. And while Russia was turning into kind of China's orbit, um, uh, Russia understood that uh, this is something inevitable that Russia should have to live with that uh, China will be playing more and more important role in Central Asia uh, and Russia just cannot compete with it uh, when it comes to economic dimension. Um, and uh, if uh, in the first years it was nervous, now it um, decided to focus on those spheres where it has uh, the upper hand. And uh, this is security. Uh, this is uh, a political um, influence, uh, and uh, to this moment, uh, we still know that um, there are no other countries around the world that have 
uh, instruments uh, to influence, uh, you know, security damage and, and political um, development of Central Asian countries other than Russia, because Russia is um, very closely connected to um, not, not Russia, but Russian leadership. Uh, the political elites are closely connected um, um, ideologically and um, uh, historically to the political leadership of Central Asian countries. Um, um, and, and yeah, uh, basically at this moment, Russia just understands that it cannot compete with China in terms of economy. And that is why uh, it doesn't even try to, you know, make uh, Central Asian countries to not get involved into BRI or not to um become close partners with China in economic dimension, um, but uh, try to kind of give them another variant. And we see Eurasian Economic Union, which is not, you know, the most successful uh, union that exists in the world, but, but still uh, Russia um, uh, decides to fake it till it make it. Uh, and uh, when it comes to BRI, Russia also is a part of uh, Belt and Road Initiative, but it um, uh, started uh, to co cooperate with BRI, not um, as just uh, Russia, as just uh, independent country, but as this entity uh, with Eurasian Economic Union, and um, uh, there are talks about harmonization between Eurasian Economic Union and Bertrand Initiative, which also no one knows what it is um, in fact, but uh, here Russia just uh, wants to be on the one level with uh, China and not become um, the same kind of individual state that um, works under BRI as other uh, smaller countries. Yeah. Um, Something I get nervous about a lot of Western writers and press is they'll use this term oligarch for Central Asia or Russia. They will not use it internally. So Jeff Bezos or, you know, Elon Musk, two of the wealthiest men on the planet are just normal guys. You know, oh, I'm hanging out on Twitter uh, or I'm going to Vegas with my with my model girlfriend. But the same sort of Orientalist uh, slurs of the oligarch are not used against them. Um, within Central Asia, how do people conceptualize the oligarch? Would they think of a Jeff Bezos or an Elon Musk as an oligarch? And what have your thoughts been on why this is sort of an Orientalist label applied when the West looks out at Russia or Central Asia and to some extent China? but refuses to apply to its own um, economic uh, leaders in what more and more countries, particularly Xi Jinping's China, are seen as a, as a point of potential social revolution, global inequality. I, I, I really don't know why um, um, American media doesn't call, uh, I don't know, Bill Gates, for example, uh, an oligarch. Uh, um, but uh, in Central Asia, this is um, uh, something, uh, a very natural uh, thing. Uh, as I've told you before, um, here you cannot um, become um, a very influential person um, 
without uh, access to power. So here, access to power is a key. Uh, you, you cannot become rich without, um, you know, somebody who protects you from the power um, uh, landscape, um, which is called in Russian Krisha or tank um, in, in, in Uzbek also they use this term uh, where you have this person or you know group of people whom with whom you're connected um, kind of unofficially maybe it's your relative maybe it's your close friend but who kind of protects your business from um, uh, you know getting um, taken away from you and um, uh, this is uh, you know, a, a very normal uh, thing that everyone understands. And that is why, uh, because these two, um, two ideas about power and money being so tightly close together, that is why every single person who's rich automatically becomes oligarch because it has access to power. It has access to uh, influence domestic politics. Uh, but when it comes to, uh, you know, the US, I don't really know um, how it works there. But I doubt that to become, uh, you know, Bezos or Gates or um, Musk, you had to have access to power. Yeah, in, in America, I do believe that you can become a rich person and only after that you get access to power because you're so big, because your corporation, um, you know, um, has uh, so much um, to influence. Uh, and, and, and I think this is the main difference here. Within Central Asia, I'm, I'm kind of wondering who is advising Central Asia about the direction, um, the if we want to develop capitalism, the direction we should go? Um, could you talk a little bit about, is McKinsey coming into Tashkent? Is, is McKinsey coming into Alamati? Um, is, is Milton Friedman's University of Chicago School setting up a, you know, a new uh, campus in Turkmenistan? What is the sort of the future of capitalism as far as we can tell on the ground who is speaking to the leaders of Central Asia and where are they turning to for advice? Yeah, when we talk about um, Central Asian countries uh, and their um, kind of strategies for uh, economic development in the future, we also should differentiate these countries uh, on the level of openness. Uh, here, of course, when we talk about uh, Kazakhstan, it's the most open country. Uh, it attracts a lot of investment from Western countries, um, and yeah, many people think uh, for some reason that China here is the main uh, investor in Kazakh economy, but it's not true. Um, main um, investors uh, of uh, Kazakhstan are uh, based in uh, European countries. And this, uh, of course, influences how Kazakhstan uh, the, which ways Kazakhstan decides to uh, develop its economy to. Uh, and um, um, of course, in Kazakhstan, you have a bunch of different, uh, you know, consultancy, international um, agencies um, who present there and who um, actively work there. And um, uh, yeah, so uh, in Central Asia, this is a completely different world. Um, uh, Kyrgyzstan 
also tries to be open, but it doesn't have much to offer to global economy uh, if we compare it with Kazakhstan, of course. Uh, well, Kazakhstan has, um, you know, um, enormous resources of oil. Uh, Kyrgyzstan doesn't possess that much. And even in those areas where Kyrgyzstan has, uh, uh, something to offer like um, golden uh, resources, yeah, in, uh, for example, Kumtor, uh, golden mining uh, territory is uh, the uh, richest um, um, mining uh, kind of source of uh, gold uh, in the region. Uh, but uh, because of uh, different, uh, you know, political tensions, uh, Kumtor um, is uh, not, um, you know, the most secure place to invest your money in. And what's going on right now with uh, attempts of Kyrgyz uh, government to nationalize it uh, and how uh, Canadian uh Centera gold uh, that operates there is suffering or not suffering but has you know problems with securing its property um and uh, its rights uh in uh, Kyrgyzstan is an example of how you know politics um uh, just uh, go into um economy and um influence so um um, in Kyrgyzstan, uh, to put it basically, you don't have um, secured, um, you don't have like uh, guarantees that uh, your property will not be uh, taken away from you. Uh, the same, but to a more uh, visible uh, scale uh, we saw in Uzbekistan during Soviet, uh, sorry, during the times of Islam Karimov, um, it was uh, his um, daughter, Gulnar Karimova, who, uh, whose kind of hobby was to come and take away uh, businesses from other people. Uh, and uh, in, you know, the country where you don't have uh, independent uh, judges uh, system, when you don't have laws that work, when you don't have guarantees that uh, you can work, uh, you know, um, freely and uh, be, uh, and, and your property will be protected. Um, not so many um, investors are um, eager to come to um, your country. Um, and, and, and that is why uh, there are no many, um, you know, uh, foreign experts who come to Uzbekistan um, and uh, recommend a country in way, which way to develop uh, their economy. Um, and even today, uh, we hear a lot and, and read a lot about Uzbekistan's, um, you know, liberalization in economic sphere about um, how Uzbekistan is opening up to the world, but we still have um, a very influential lobby uh, inside of uh, political elites who do not want to change status quo, who do not want uh, to lose their sources of uh, income. Uh, and uh, this uh, what holds back Uzbekistan from further development at this moment. Uh, and 
um, the president of Katmer's Yoav is kind of balancing between uh, promising more and more reforms to the population, and on the other hand, between uh, those influential uh, monopoly holders uh, who have their say in uh, the future of the country. So this this breaking of the iron rice rice bowl in China, uh, in Russia, I suppose the phenomenon would be perestroika and glasnost. What tension has emerged in Central Asia as these changes have occurred? Are there uh, is Central Asia going through its own version of perestroika or or breaking the iron rice bowl? And do you see within the countries um, still a sense? I know Tajikistan, the Calvary Journal, has written about this. But if you talk to young people there, at least anecdotally, some people or older people will speak fondly of socialism in terms of state-sponsored care or state-sponsored work or state-sponsored housing. So could you talk a bit about, you know, some of the nostalgia and the complicated feelings because this was colonialism? It's not like Central Asia invited these countries in for the most part, though I know Kazakhstan wanted them to stick around, but that's a sort of complex subject. So could you talk a little bit about the tensions and, you know, disruptions that emerged as Central Asia became more capitalist? And do we see younger people or political movements that say, well, wait, not everything about capitalism is good. Maybe we should think a little bit more about our Soviet legacy, despite its complications with colonialism. I uh, would... um talk about Uzbekistan because, um, uh, you know, I think that I feel uh, what is the thinking in the society uh, much better uh, in Uzbekistan than in other Central Asian countries. Uh, And if we take a look at how Uzbekistan managed to go through, um, um, you know, what uh, was um, in Russia, uh, Perestroika, uh, and uh, what followed uh, Perestroika was shockwave um, uh, therapy uh, and like shock therapy for Russian economy uh, when uh, the you know Russian government just uh, immediately uh, you know dropped uh, government. Um, kind of um, uh, presence in the economy and um, decided to switch to uh, capitalist um, uh, instruments overnight. Uh, Uzbekistan, uh, when Russia was going through these uh, times very difficultly, Uzbekistan was a very, very stable uh, place. Um, Islam Karimov, who was... um, uh, the leader of um, uh, the uh, Communist Party branch of Uzbekistan uh, in the last years of Soviet Union uh, became a president and he was uh, uh, continuing, um, you know, uh, basically uh, what Uzbekistan has been doing during the uh, uh, Soviet times and uh, changes that Uzbekistan has gone through um, at those times were very, very slow. Uh, and um, Karimov uh, understood that he has a lot of time uh, in his um, hands and uh, he was not uh, quick with any kind of um, liberalizations or reforms um, in, in this uh, sphere. So, um, 
uh, for Uzbek uh, people, uh, it was not like they uh, one, you know, one morning they woke up in a capitalist country. No, uh, uh, Uzbekistan was a very heavily uh, government uh, protected economy, government influenced economy uh, and uh, government was everywhere. Um, and um, on the one hand, of course, um, it helped um, Uzbekistan to uh, become this uh, kind of island of uh, stability. Um, of course, it was uh, at the same time um, very poor um, uh, country uh, and many uh, had to uh, flee and go to other countries to find uh, income. Uh, and that is why at this moment we have the biggest, um, um, you know, uh, amount of people um, working as labor migrants. Um, but um, at the same time, um, it did not create um, this uh, sense of uh, collapse in minds of uh, the society. Uh, and um, uh, because of that, you know, there was no uh, sense uh, that there was yesterday which was Soviet Union and, and and we have now which is um, Uzbekistan because there, there there are no very you know much uh, difficult uh, differences between those periods and people uh, didn't um, of course they felt uh, the difference but uh, they didn't uh, live uh, through it as um, other uh, people in other countries of Soviet Union did um, and um, at the same time, um, you know, um, Uzbekistan started heavily uh, propagating its kind of national identity, um, its ideas um, about um, sovereignty being the biggest value uh, and uh, uh, kind of de-Sovietization uh, of everything. Um, and that is why um, I don't really have, um, you know, my people of my age who talk about Soviet Union as something that was, you know, better than um, modern Uzbekistan. Um, of course, we have elderly who used to live during Soviet times and uh, used to uh, live in a more stable um, economy um, who... Still today, kind of have nostalgic uh, ideas about Soviet Union, but uh, when it comes to the youth, um, um, I don't have any, uh, you know, um, I don't have um, a feeling that uh, people here um, very um, that the people here think about Soviet Union as something that um, is better to. Um, orient to, or um, that Soviet Union times could play a role model for uh, the current government. Uh, in, in contrary, actually, with uh, what I saw um, in, in Russia. Uh, in Russia, there are, you know, uh, many young people who um, read uh, Capital um, uh, by Marx and um, 
uh, think about uh, this uh, theoretically uh, being a uh, very good uh, system uh, that could have worked if um, uh, the government was really dedicated to it. Uh, and, um, you know, um, I, I don't see uh, the same um, idealization of uh, Soviet Union here in Uzbekistan. Well, Tamir, this has been really fascinating. Um, you have done a masterful job helping us understand some of these systems. Um, I have, this is the final question. Uh, and if you could start by letting people know where they can find your work, uh, or if they want to follow you online, any resources you would point them to. The final question is this. We have two major foreign policy events in Russia and China uh, that have reverberated through Central Asia. Uh, one is the war on Ukraine. Uh, the other is Xinjiang, which uh, I know for Kazakhstan, which borders uh, Xinjiang, as well as uh, Uzbekistan, which has a large population of, of Uyghurs uh, historically who've lived in, uh, in the country. Could you talk about how these, uh, the leaders of these countries, how have they reacted to the war on Ukraine, the leaders? How have they reacted to Xinjiang, the leaders? And what's been the public response to how the government has reacted? Yeah, uh, first, you can find my uh, works at um, Carnegie.ru uh, website. You can also follow me on Twitter. Uh, it's T-U-M-A-R-O-V. Uh, uh, yeah, so moving on to the questions. Um, I think what's happening right now um, in Ukraine, uh, this uh, unimaginable tragedy uh, will change so much, um, not only in, um, in, you know, broader geopolitics and uh, international relations in Eurasia and in the world, but uh, in Central Asia, of course, and uh, in its relations with Russia. Uh, and this is uh, such a big and um, enormous kind of um, event that will uh, definitely um, have its own effect on uh, almost everything uh, in, in Central Asia. And that is why they just cannot ignore it as they did, for example, during the annexation of Crimea in 2014. Um, um, when they could just say that you're that they're neutral to this event, now they cannot because this is too big of a deal. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, we have already seen how uh, the leadership of the of these countries reacted to uh, the events in um, um, in Ukraine. Uh, Russia, uh, Kazakh uh, leadership was very accurate with its wording for. Um, you know, many days, but on um, March 29th, um, uh, Deputy um, Director of um, President's Administration, uh, Timur Suleimanov, um, went um, to Brussels, where he gave an interview to uh, Euractiv um, uh, website, uh, and uh, there, uh, there uh, he clearly said that uh, Kazakhstan, that um, um, it's not a, you know, 
uh, it's not a quote, but uh, the sense was that uh, Russia wants Kazakhstan to be more on its side, but Kazakhstan will not support um, the act of aggression uh, in Ukraine. Kazakhstan supports uh, Ukraine's territorial integrity and sovereignty. Uh, and uh, Kazakhstan will not help Russia to escape from the sanctions that are put on its economy. Uh, this is, is a very, I would say, bold statement uh, because Kazakhstan considered um, uh, as, uh, you know, maybe the second most important ally for Russia uh, besides Belarus. And of course, Belarus right now is Kind of trapped and doesn't have any other options than supporting Russia. Uh, but Kazakhstan also uh, integrated very much into Russian economy, into Russian security dimension, uh, into all of the, you know, if you name any international uh, integrational project that Russia leads, Kazakhstan is a part of this. So for Kazakhstan, this was a very um, important statement to do. And um, right now, I think for Kazakhstan, it's understandable that Russia has become so toxic that you just cannot um, stay neutral as, as, as you used to. Uh, for Uzbekistan, uh, it was also the statement uh, made by the um, head of uh, Ministry of Foreign Affairs, Abdulaziz Kamilov. He uh, said that Uzbekistan is supporting territorial integrity and sovereignty of Ukraine, and uh, Uzbekistan will not uh, accept uh, Luhansk and Donetsk uh, so-called uh, uh, people's uh, republics uh, as independent. Uh, this was also a bold statement, but Uzbekistan is in kind of a better place uh, compared to Kazakhstan uh, because, you know, it's not integrated into uh, Russia-led uh, Eurasian Economic Union or um, Collective Security Treaty Organization. And that is why it has more freedom of maneuver here. But still, um, Russia has, uh, for example, Uzbekistan's migrants. Uh, and we know that there are 3 million migrants of, uh, from Uzbekistan. And it's just only official information. Maybe uh, in, in real world, there are more of them in Russia. Um, so um, Central Asia, is uh, trying to move away from very toxic Russia um, at this moment, and we will see where it goes. Uh, but when it comes to China and when it comes to Xinjiang question, Central Asia was in, in the leadership level was completely silent. And um, there was no criticism whatsoever about what is going on in Xinjiang because uh, this considered to be a very different question. Um, you know, um, it, it may sound cynical or um, kind of um, not, not ethical, but uh, in, uh, from the point of view of Central Asians, what is going on in Xinjiang is a domestic issue and they do not have any right to interfere in, in this issue. Uh, because all of these countries know that um, if you even look at uh, what is going on inside of those uh, countries, you would see that, um, of course, we're not talking about um, limiting in rights 
a group of ethnic minority or religious minority, but still um, you have many, many issues with human rights. And uh, when you, as a Central Asian country, have a lot of problems on your own, you cannot um, come to China uh, and uh, point at problems that it has with other countries. So this is the thinking in Central Asian leadership. And also, um, there is a risk that criticizing China for what it's doing in Xinjiang will be followed by many sanctions, by very, you know, uh, uh, unprecedented or uh, maybe unpredictable moves from China that will make Central Asian countries suffer a lot. And we already see how, for example, China reacts to statements from Australia, yeah, banning its um, import of uh, coal uh, and other products uh, which you know hit hard uh, Australian economy and Central Asian countries who also share enormous border with China do not want to spoil this friendship that they created during the last 30 years uh, and um, you know I don't see any potential uh, in the nearest future uh, Xinjiang question being raised on the political leadership level. But when we come to public level, civil society is very loud and clear about Xinjiang, especially in Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan, because in these countries, uh, people who have literally their relatives being affected by uh, uh, by you know, these detentions and, um, as China calls it, re-education uh, in Xinjiang. Uh, people in Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan have their relatives who are, you know, suffering in Xinjiang. And that is why they go to the streets, they protest, they um, make uh, this uh, uh, problem visible, raise the awareness about this uh, issue and um, uh, there is this huge contrast between the public reaction and uh, the leadership uh, reaction. But um, if we move away from the border, for example, if we go to Uzbekistan, you will not see anything of it. Um, even though there is a huge um, Uyghur population in Uzbekistan, um, you don't see uh, public reaction being that, um, you know, particularly anti-anti, uh, and, and, and um, you know, this policy uh, in Xinjiang. Uh, and this has to do a lot with um, the, uh, you know, toughness of the authoritarian regime that exists in Uzbekistan. It's just really very difficult to go to the streets in Uzbekistan compared to Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan. Uh, in Uzbekistan, everyone remembers what happened to people who started protesting in Andijan in 2005. Yeah, um, and, and at that time, government didn't um, didn't um, just um, it just um, it, it was just a massacre, um, and um, government didn't even care about the law about the people uh, it just um, uh, decided to take a radical measures um, 
and and that is why in Uzbekistan it's really difficult to go um, and protest. And um, at the same time, um, in Uzbekistan, from the very beginning of independence, there was a, um, uh, there was a, a policy uh, on ethnic minorities to um, make them um, Uzbek. Uh, kind of uh, you know, the government uh, was um, uh, making situation for ethnic minorities almost uh, you know impossible to survive in um, Uzbek economy. Uh, I myself am a Tajik uh, that grew up in Samarkand, but um, if you open my passport, you would see that it, uh, in the line ethnicity is written Uzbek uh, because. Um, you know, in, in the 90s, it was very difficult to get a real normal job um, if you were a uh, ethnic minority in Uzbekistan. So this also has its own um, influence on how people think about uh, being connected ethnically to other, um, um, you know, ethnics in other countries. Uh, and... Um, and um, that is why um, they don't kind of um, uh, share um, this um, kind of connection to um, people uh, from Xinjiang.